Hello, my name is Zavanya Shukla and this is my co-host Karen Maruni and you're listening to Great in the Send Business. Welcome to the show. Welcome everybody. We're thrilled to be here with Paul. He's the co-founder and CEO of Superbase. What is Superbase? It's a open source Firebase alternative. For those of you that are even thinking of building, you can build in a weekend, but you can scale to millions with Superbase. So welcome, Paul. And why don't you tell people what you do in your words? Because they'll be way better than mine. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Karen. Uh, and thanks for thanks for having me. There's a great intro. Actually, uh, you kind of nailed it. We're a platform for builders. We um, provide tools specifically for for builders who want to um, get started uh, very fast. Most uh, importantly, we provide the database layer. So we offer a Postgres database. And then on top of that, we've got a couple of other tools, an authentication system, a um, storage layer for large files, um, some edge functions for heavy compute, and then um, some auto-generated APIs. And then most relevant for this uh, podcast is we also have this vector offering uh, powered by PG Vector, which is an extension for Postgres. So Paul, one of the things that our audience is trying to wrap their heads around is like, we had the MLOps stack and now we have the LMOps stack. I think we're close to getting the multi-model, uh, multi-model models out. So we're going to have the AI ops stack. Like, what do you think that stack looks like? And then how does Superbase fit into it? Yeah, well, so we're extremely popular for the builders. Um, so, you know, for, for reference, just to put some numbers around it, we launch around 11,000 databases every week. And um, so, uh, a lot of them are launching with maybe a front-end framework like Next.js or, or like a React-type framework. Um, and so um, it's largely like a JavaScript and a database system. So um, I think that, you know, we've got a different view from probably what a lot of the ML uh, engineers see. Um, but, uh, you know, actually the use cases are converging. So what started in Superbase with a lot of JavaScript is now actually moving a lot more towards Python users and different use cases, uh, largely driven by, you know, the LLM type use cases. But, um, you know, what people are building is uh, roughly the same. We, we see a lot of these applications that are pretty similar to, to um, you know, everything else. A lot of them kind of trying to discover what is the new app that will be built. And uh, at this stage, they kind of look like three different things. It's always going to be around like chat with characters, uh, chat with your docs or some sort of yeah generative character system. And what are the most like, I guess you have this really interesting view into the apps that people are building using elements. And like, there's the obvious ones that you mentioned, but like, have you seen anything that's like really exciting that people are non-obvious uh, app based on elements? And how much of them are yep. not okay for work? I'm curious. <laughs> yes. Just like when people are building, where does it start? Where does yeah. it go? I mean, you're seeing all the early steps, so I'm I'm intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of them are, um, of course, safe for work. But the most interesting ones actually are not safe for work. We've got one on our platform that scaled from uh, zero to a million users in 10 days. So that's wow. almost as fast as ChatGPT. And, um, and it's not, they're not safe, safe for, for work. work, you know, okay. chat with Garrett. No, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk vector databases. 
And I know, can you explain to people how you think about multimodal and, you know, in layman's terms, how you can add video and other other modes into the database? Like, how do we think about that? So multimodal is definitely becoming a, a thing now, especially with um, ChatGPT adding it. So everyone's far more interested uh, in what they can do and how they can build. Um, we're seeing a lot more. Uh, uh, so out of those databases that we're seeing um, where they're storing embeddings, um, I think uh, like maybe last week or the week before, we're checking how many of them, uh, what type of embeddings they're using. 98% of them are using uh, Adder to by OpenAI. So almost everything is actually storing just tags. And then now um, there's a trend upwards for Clip. Uh, a lot of people are starting to um, use Clip to uh, embed images largely. And then, of course, um, one of the products that I said was storing large files. You, of course, want to take them, store them separately and then take uh, the embeddings around it and store that in your database so that you can do similarity. These are quite uh, interesting use cases for us, but I I've got to say it's very nascent. I'm quite excited to see what people will build around it and what the different use cases are. Um, we're seeing a lot of, um, at the moment, the similarity for images largely around not safe for work uh, because you might want to segment what you think is a not safe for work image uh, out of your embeddings database, maybe by a partition and remove that data so it doesn't slow down, say, your indexes, your searches, and you don't have to, of course, pay for that storage. But are there other applications like that? For like, because multimodal is going to come, it's going to be the big thing very soon. How can companies think about other applications for multimodal for themselves and how can they prep themselves? And why would they want to use it to be? <laughs> Yeah, so I think there's kind of two ways to think about it. Um, the generative aspect and then the RAG type of approaches. Um, very nascent in the RAG um, use cases. So, uh, Will you tell I our think... audience sorry, what a RAG is just in case people don't know? There might be people. Sure. So RAG is retrieval augmented generation, and um, that's where you might find a relevant um, set, let's say, for text, um, if you're going to generate an answer from your documentation, you'll have someone ask a question like, uh, how do I use weights and biases? And then um, you'll take that question, you'll turn it into an embedding, then you search your database and you might find the top K results, say five results. Then you send all of those results and the question to a generative model and um, it will spit out an answer based on the results that you have. So it's very useful for uh, anything that's in the private domain um, where an LLM wouldn't have ingested it. Um, so any private data. And so, yeah, when we're moving into multi-modal, uh, then what you might want to do is find relevant images. Um, for example, let's say they want to um, generate a, a uh, image of a, I don't know, cow and a duck or something like that, you might want to actually find five uh, images that kind of look like that so that it can do it more precisely than just the model has been trained on. So it might be relevant to your specific cow and duck that you want to generate. Interesting. So like fine tuning using that. Ah. 
Just it's like, a bit like fine tuning. Uh, th yeah. This is like another tool on the belt, essentially. Um, you can either um, let the large language model do it or, or whichever model that you've got. You can yeah. add, uh, like sort of um, enhance it with RAG based on some data that you've got, or you can then fine tune it based on probably a lot of interactions that you've had with your community. And we're seeing a lot more of this at the moment as well now where people are storing you know, all of the questions that, um, that people might ask, then they're um, seeing the ratings that um, might be generated. So people can give a thumbs up, thumbs down, and then you use those results to fine tune later on. So, yeah. Uh, can I selfishly ask you like this? Because like, I see like every time, every three months the answer changes, but like, do you see people fi fine tuning or do you see people uh, using browns to tune the models? And also, like, just to give context, those of us who come from the machine learning um, space find it, like, uh, the obvious answer is we're going to fine-tune, we know how to fine-tune, we have the infrastructure, right? But most of the people doing this don't know how to train a model, don't have the GPUs. So, like, what are you seeing? Yeah, actually, in our space, mostly people are just improving the prompts or evals on the prompt, uh, if that, actually. Um, so uh, they're very much just waiting for the models to to improve. And the way that uh, I kind of see the layer of the land at the moment is kind of, um, you've got several layers, right? So you've got the application, then you've got the models, then you've got the databases, then you've got the systems below. And as you go deeper and deeper, sort of the churn is, is lower. So applications are churning very fast. They're getting spun up. We've had one um, open source template, which is kind of chat with your docs which has launched 5,000 databases on Superbase. So a lot of people doing that use case, even for that specific open source app. Then you've got the models, which of course are improving uh, at a rapid rate. Then you've got the databases, which all of them are improving, both traditional and specialized. And then of course, you've got NVIDIA down the bottom, who's um, just <laughs> winning everything. Well, um like you didn't start out building a company to build vector databases, but you were able to pivot to it. Sounds like pretty fast and become one of the leading players. What is so special about how you think about products and how you think about like running your org that makes you so adaptable to new big changes? Yeah, a lot of um, what we think about when we're building is just providing the sort of core primitives that um, any, uh, in fact, any business might need. So any developer might need. So the ones that we said, like database, all um, storage, file storage, these ones are kind of key to everything that you, almost every business. So not a specific use case, but very general. And then on into each of these uh, products, we build extensibility. And luckily with Postgres, it's got uh, extensibility built in. So we're always thinking, you know, what will a developer need for the next 10 years and how do we make it extensible so that no matter what the next wave is, this current wave is uh, largely around embeddings, but ideally it can be kind of uh, added very easily as a primitive on top. And so we, we literally uh, merged it within a week um, into our platform, built some docs around it, and within a month uh, people were building building with uh, PG Vector. Yeah. It's interesting because like, it's almost like you're building the Lego blocks for businesses and then they're very extensible so you can build it. So do you have any advice for like how different startups can think about what their version of the Lego block is? 
And then second question is your, how do you think about hiring the team? Because like, it sounds like your team was super adaptable too. In a week it was out, you know, not everything mm. can do that. Oh yeah. Well, I guess to start from the second one, that one's a funny story. So um, I actually got this email from from an open source contributor and he said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm using Superbase and uh, I, I really need this extension and here's a pull request. Um, can you merge it in so I can start building with it? So I got on a call with him and, uh, and I, I actually didn't know about PG Vector at the time and we talked through it and then um, it, it seemed cool. So we merged it and literally two days later, he had kind of built something. And then the first use case uh, was actually this chat with our docs. Now you see it everywhere, but I, I'm, I think we might've been one of the first to do this system where you ingest all of your docs um, and then you can do this generative um, answer, question and answer using RAG. And it was done by this contributor who then we ended up hiring. And um, so that's how our whole team functions actually. We're completely distributed. We employ a lot of open source maintainers. When people are kind of too good to ignore, of course we want them to build uh, within Superbase all the time and be part of the team. Uh, I think, you know, going to the shift back, the millennials are the ones who are running the companies now. And like, we, it, like companies used to have this very like vanilla tone. And now it's like, you guys are like out there with your memes and like other people have becoming more casual and more authentic and like ken obviously is the queen of like knowing how to message your company so i'm curious what you guys think about like the shift in how like especially let's like, just look at developer uh companies how should you talk to your users what should be their talent what's appropriate yeah it's a great question um i don't know if we even really discuss like how our tone would be largely what we did was we just Anne to myself got online and started chatting to them about their problems. And, you know, if they were using it, we engaged with them. And then, uh, you know, if they had issues that they were publicly raised, we would face them and we would confess to them and talk through how we're going to fix it. So I think the tone was just largely, we want to help you build better. Um, and that kind of has become the um, sort of psyche of our community as a result. We weren't really too focused in architecting any specific tone. It just kind of spilled out the other side of like really trying to be helpful to individuals as much as anything. And I think, Levani, you're asking because I've worked with, you know, Mark Zuckerberg for 10 years and Mark Benioff for 13 years and other people not named Mark, uh, like Diane Green <laughs> or Jeff Bezos hey. for many years in Reed over at Netflix. And, um, and I think... A common mistake when you start a company is that you think there's some archetype you're, archetype you're supposed to be, and then everybody just tries to look for lessons, and that's smart, and that's good, but then when you try to be like anybody else, you just, you know, it's so, everybody knows it's really painful for you and for everybody who has to watch, and so, um, and it gets really boring really, really fast, so I think it just it takes a lot to put yourself out there and to be like, you know, initially when Mark Benioff launched Salesforce, people hated him because he's <laughs> really a character. And it was like, who's this 
guy <laughs> making dolphin sounds and wearing Hawaiian shirts and telling us like everything's going to change. So um, it's a whole, I think mostly it's embrace the parts that are just you and, and, um, and then be really into your audience and who you're going to serve because that's all that matters. You know, all the other noise is noise and you, you can't focus on being liked. You got to focus on being useful. The one thing that you guys do really specifically though, is this idea of first principles. I think of you as like a first principle company and this, uh, for those of you that know Superbase, you're into launch weeks and they're very two different things. Can you talk about how you set uh, principles? Because for those of you that don't know, Superbase is a distributed company. You guys are all over the world. And I think it's really important to have those, that idea of first principles, especially when you're going to be distributed, which Lavanya and I want to talk more about, but first principles, and then talk to us about launch week. Yeah, the principled approach is largely an alignment tool. And I, I think it's useful um, in any company, but especially around um, around distributed companies, because a lot of what we do is um, we we leave the techies to kind of work on their own. So they're off for, for a week. Um, they'll have one meeting a week and then they do their work. And so how do you trust that they're going to work on the right things? You just set up the context by which they can think about the product, think about whatever they're building in the right way. So we've got literally embedded in our docs the way that we think about um, the product. So for example, two of our principles, one is that everything must work in isolation. So each tool, the database and the auth system, each one can be a standalone product. Then the second principle is that everything works uh, as an integrated system. So even though that they can work uh, in uh, as standalone tools, when you pair them together, they kind of create magic. And it's a little bit like the Apple ecosystem. Like you can have a phone and you can have a MacBook and you can have the AirPods. And when you connect them together, then you get this awesome synergy between the three, three systems. But you can also use them individually and they're also quite nice. So, you know, a lot of these thinking just has to be written down into, on paper so that the you can hand them over to say the engineers or anyone else in the business and they can think along in, in the same pattern. So this is fascinating. So like how are you building the APIs, designing the APIs so like they do you, they are compatible with each other as people build their own little tools that work in isolation? And what are the KPIs that you're measuring these edge teams again? Yeah, so the kind of substrate for us, I think, is Postgres. And that's the fundamental um, layer at the bottom. Everything else builds up from that. And that's almost the API layer by which everything else can work. So when I say the auth system works um, standalone, actually, it still needs um, the auth, uh, still needs Postgres. And our large file storage system still needs Postgres. Um, then to interact between them, they can either use um, the schemas within the database and they can be separate, but um, then you can build, say, foreign keys amongst them. Or if it's two systems, then we kind of think of two primitives that you have, either an API or webhooks. And with those fundamentals, everything else can be joined together um, and you know interfaced uh, quite cleanly. And are the teams designing this um, together? Is it coming from top down? Um, and also, like, I feel like 
when you're starting a startup, you're like, oh my God, this is my baby. I don't know if I can trust like individual engineers to just go off and build whatever. So like, how do you not go after that sense of control and just like trust the people to build the right thing? Well, the, the principles largely are the thing that make sure you can trust because it, it was like that at the start. For example, um, we had a, a guy join who's an incredible techie. And um, one of the first things I did with him was uh, I didn't actually give him the principles. I said, come up with some principles yourself. And then I could see how he thinks about the product. And then I compared it to what I've got and we found a delta and actually some of the principles shifted based on his thinking. So we kind of converged. And then by the time we got to the end of that exercise, we were just thinking completely aligned. And so I knew, ah, actually, I never have to worry about product again. This guy knows how to build and I can trust him to make decisions even when I'm away. And the more you can do that across all of your teams. So at the moment we're doing it say uh, with um, our head of growth for sales and how do we think about the principles for the sales team and how they should sell. And he's going to trickle those down to his team then he knows he can hand off a lot of what he's doing at the moment. So for our audience, if you could like tell us like what are some of these principles for sales just to help them crystallize? Yeah, so for example, at the moment, we're extremely focused on our community and the developer persona. And you know, as you grow, um, people generally start to lose that focus on the indie developer. So for us, it's really important that, you know, you don't, we're going to bake that into our DNA. We do product-led growth. Essentially, the developer comes in, they love the product, um, and they'll bring it into the organization and sell it for us, essentially, is the idea. And if we do that right, we believe that we can be a really big business. If we um, lose sight of that, then I think you get this short-term win where you quickly grow around enterprise and then your community tails off and it flatlines and you can't actually go back at that point. You, as soon as you lose your community, um, you become irrelevant. So we want to bake this in. So part of the sales journey is uh, teaching them about PLG. What are the principles? Like for example, it's not sales, it's consulting. You don't have to tell them that you're going to solve all their problems. If you're not, you need to listen to their problems, find out if we can fix it. If we can't fix it, tell them that and tell the product team so that in the future, maybe we can design some more primitives that might solve their problem later on. How do you structure your company in a way where the industry is moving fast, the tech is moving fast? You guys are a distributed company. You came from Y Combinator where you're used to like a certain amount of pressure and a certain amount of speed. How do you build your company to deal and like create its own pressure and respond to the changing technology that's that's at a warp speed? Yeah, for us, that's our launch weeks. Um, so, um, you know, we had this funny thing where we started in 2020, uh, then we went into Y Combinator and it was the first fully remote uh, batch because of COVID um, we didn't. Actually, Ant and I were in Singapore at the time, so we, we had to um, do it at 2 a.m. every, every day, um, but what happens during YC is that you get all this pressure leading up to demo day. And so we had like a hundred days. And I remember I said to one of the engineers, build an interface that looks exactly like Airtable on top of Postgres. And you've got a hundred days to do it. And he smashed it. Like he just knew that this deadline was there. He knew what he had to do. 
I didn't talk to him and just he would turn up every every week and he would have these awesome improvements. Then we got outside of Y Combinator and there's kind of this daunting future, like nothing is ahead of you. You've just got this big open space which you are meant to develop in. And so we said to ourselves, all right, in three months from now, we're just going to move from alpha to beta. And uh, it doesn't matter what we ship, we sh just ship, ship, ship. And then on that day, we um, just changed it. And we said, we've moved from alpha to beta with a kind of landing page. And we saw uh, not only internally was everyone motivated towards that day, we saw this huge like uh, incline on the curve. So everyone um, started launching more databases, new databases. The community grew by 20%, I think overnight. And we thought, ah, oh, you know, that's actually quite interesting. We didn't, we literally did not change anything on the, or launch anything. We just changed this kind of positioning. And um, so we were like really excited by that. And we went away and thought, ah, oh, you know, how can we do it even bigger? And so we thought, well, instead of changing one thing, why don't we ship one major feature every day for a week? And um, we set that goal sort of four months ahead. And then when we did that, the, you know, it was the start of this kind of launch week uh, activity. And every time we did it, we were just seeing the slope of the curve would change, the community would grow, everyone would get excited about what else they can build. And uh, mostly as well, the community felt that they were listened to because they would actually come attend these launch weeks activities. And that's when they would see the things that we were shipping. You know, it's very hard to get your new features in front of the developers, even if they're asking for it. And so that was the way that we did it. And um, it's become really a part of how we run the company now. We are, I think, coming up to our 10th launch week in, in a month or two. And uh, we aim for them every quarter. So it also helps with our company planning. If, if you think, if they, if they go with Apple did the same thing with WWDC and like, it's nice to have those in, imposed, self-imposed deadlines. Karen, you get to see an uh, insane amount of amazing companies. Are you seeing other examples of like how companies stay motivated? I think that the deadlines are incredibly important because it's just too daunting. And there's, when do you call it done when you're building? Because the people inside the company want to build a great product and they will be builders and they will be polishers and they will be iterators. And they all need to know when it's pencils down. And it's incredibly hard to decide when it's pencils down. So some companies like Salesforce have Dreamforce and other companies have these external events. Some companies uh, develop more internal events. So a big deal inside Meta, Facebook when I was there, is that they have these internal all hands, which they use as uh, forcing functions for the internal groups to have deadlines that they're not quite ready to show the world. But when you're showing them to your peers, you care just as much as when you're showing them externally. So every quarter, Mark Zuckerberg would pick, here's here are the things that I'm trying to drive. They may not be quite ready for prime time, but we need, these are the deadlines and I need you to have a working model to show the company on this date. And he would do that across different and it would be a quarterly thing, even though they would only have connect once a year or other ship dates, these all hands really helped preface the ship dates. So it was, it was another way, but forcing functions are incredibly helpful because if you don't have a date to work backwards from, you don't have a date to work backwards from. 
super interesting from the Facebook perspective that um, he's kind of deciding as well the product uh, as it grew did he continue to get involved on the product side hell yes hmm. and how yeah. how would he determine like what to what was going to be the priorities in the next quarter uh, there are always internal planning meetings where it was decided he thinks in three five and ten years and so there were three-year markers, and then you have a different cadence of how you see where you are in the three. And then it's even harder to plan the five and 10-year. You know, How do you know where you are on those five and 10-year journeys when you're measuring by month? But once you get into a company and your company starts to grow, people can easily get into the mindset of, am I going to make my bonus? And if you do yearly bonuses or you do half yearly bonuses, that ends up being the amount of time that people think about if they've achieved their goals. So how do you then break it into some really important things take longer than six months and they can take longer than a year, but how do you know that you're making progress on them and how do you keep it moving quickly? So that's when you set the priorities, but then you need to have some check check-ins that show whether or not you think where you are on this roadmap. Um, and it was really important. So he was actively, actively engaged in all of this. You would do a, a leadership setting of priorities and that's hard as your, your portfolio sort of grows of what it is. Um, and then you would also need to understand from, you have different leaders of each group and they would say what's possible. And then Mark would push you even harder. One quick story is when I first started at, at Facebook, it was one of the first F8s. We used to do this user conference. The team was like, Mark is asking us to ship too many things. He wants too many things shipped. Go in there and tell him we only have 48 hours and we can only do 10 things. So I went in his conference room. I wrote all the things on the board. I thought I was so, you know, organized and in charge. I handed him a pen and I said, circle the three things that you want because we're running out of time. And he looked at the board He's totally comfortable with silence. So he was really quiet for a while. <laughs> and he took the pen and he added three things. And, <laughs> and I had to go back to the group and be like, yeah, I didn't get into priorities. Damn. I actually came back with more. They wanted to kill me Damn. and they shipped all of it. So it was a really terrible lesson. <laughs> In terms of like always pushing and maybe like, I think when you believe when you've got the best people in the world and you believe in them, it is kind of amazing what they can do. But that was a real oh. moment of like, yeah, I'm not managing this. <laughs> it's more like he's pushing us. I get it. I get how this is going to go. That's amazing. I'm, I'm now going to do that to all of our teams. I'm gonna really, the person who has to carry that them. message back is not liked. <laughs> it's just yes. like, thanks, Karen. Yeah. Good yeah. job. Yeah. 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 I'm still like, I don't know if I would, uh, how you do it, Paul. It's like, just trust the I guess you have principles that you can ground your people in, but like, if I had five people in it, it was just like, go and build whatever. I would be have so much anxiety what they're going to come back with, you know? Are you checking in with them? Do you ask for a plan before they start building? Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's not completely hands-off. I'm also, I would say, a product CEO. So yeah. um, I, I love the product and this is what I'm trying to um, sort of solve for developers, right? I want to build a product and you can that keep they really find product. useful. 
You can keep being involved. You can oh, and you sorry, will. It's also, okay. I, yes, I always, hope always. I can continue to get involved and, and yeah, focus most of my time on that. This is the thing that I think, you know, really differentiates our company. Um, so I, for example, we're about to start uh, planning for our next launch week, and I'm just going to write down a brainstorming list of what are the things that people are building. And then I'm going to say, what are the priorities? This one's going to be our 10th launch week. So it's kind of big where I've got this theme that we want to make sure that people know that we're really ready, um, that it's like uh, sort of enterprise ready, especially for 2024. We've already got enterprises building on top of us. How do we make sure that that is in the psyche? So a lot of the product um, features that we're going to ship are largely just emphasizing that what are the type of things that both indie developers need, but also enterprises need. And how do we position it in a way that's um, sort of exciting enough for, for people to actually take take notice? You said the themes, and then the people can come up with individual ways to like serve these enterprises or these different buckets. Yeah, so um, this one, so because we've got several different teams, they're all... Um, you know, we've got teams and then we've got like these cross-cutting initiatives. A really good example is like, um, let's say we've got an auth team and they are going to be, on the last one they shipped, um, multi-factor authentication. Um, and this they know is table stakes for their, if they want to build the best in the world, that's what we say to every team. What would the best auth system in the world look like? Give us all of those features, stack rank them and get to work. And then they really just go through and from top down in the stack, they try to identify what is the most important thing for all of the developers. And the way that they do it is largely where the principles come from. So we've got to make sure that um, they think about it uh, in a way that can solve um, many problems at once and that is well integrated with our systems. But they have a clear idea. If you hire an auth engineer, they know if you choose an auth engineer worth of salt, he knows exactly the features that need to be shipped. And this is where actually it works well in our model. We, uh, they'll know better than I do actually what features need to be built. And I just need to make sure that we're pushing towards a deadline. All right, let's change the pace and do a lightning round. So Paul, in this lightning round, we're going to ask you a couple questions and you're going to answer the first things that come to mind. Don't overthink it. Ready? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Great. Introvert or extrovert? Introvert. Really? I couldn't tell. I, I, I would have guessed that. Do I no. <laughs> no, I don't know. I yeah. think oh, okay. I don't know if I would have guessed that. You seem okay. That's another you're, you're doing amongst a great other job. introverts. Yeah, no, you good for you. Uh what is the first thing you ever built? And how old were you? Oh. Funnily enough, the first thing that I really remember kind of hacking was like, I remember opening a Word document in Notepad and then like playing with the like kind of code of Word. And that's the first like really hacky thing. I would have been quite young when I did that. But then like the first real thing, because I this isn't much of a lightning question, uh, sorry, but the first like real thing that I built actually was in New Zealand, uh, like focused on like an agricultural type uh, use case in, in abattoirs. Um, yeah, we can get into that if, we'll if you get want. Into but that. Yeah, okay. Uh, if you could hack with anyone, dead or alive, who would you hack with? 
Yeah, dead would probably be Joe Armstrong, the co-creator of Erlang. Uh, alive would be John Carmack. Distributed or in person? Distributed. I knew knew the answer to that one. And that's Cra- easy. <laughs> I know. Craziest place you've ever met a customer or a potential employee or is there any like bizarro land? Oh, yeah. I, actually, there's a funny employee story. Um, yet another open source one, but. Uh, I was email. I've been using this tool called Postgres um, for many years, and it's actually part of the Superbase stack. And I actually emailed one of the maintainers when we we're starting to to um, just see if he's okay that we use it within Superbase. I always ask first, and um, he said uh, yes. And he also said, "Oh, by the way, I'm looking for a for a job." And this is this guy in Peru um, who uh, who, of course, we we employed. Um, and then funnily enough, um, because we're fully distributed, he had actually never left Peru. So the first ever time he got a passport and left Peru was to come to Munich for our first company offsite to, to meet the whole team. So, um, I guess that's the strangest employee story, but also one that I'm the most proud of because, you know, it really speaks to our open source philosophy. That's so I'll. Like that's my hiring philosophy too, and that's why I love working with developers. Like I am l- literally on Twitter and looking at what our users are building, and like the people who build the best things, I'm always like, "Hey, do you want a job?" You know, and like that's <laughs> the kind of people you want to hire because they love your com- mm-hmm. uh, company, they're excited about building them. Um, yeah, we gotta get into your life story too in a sec. Okay, two more questions, okay. and then we'll get into your life story. Uh, this isn't very you- lightning. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I should. I'll keep my answers <laughs> oh. shorter. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing, Paul? Get your shit together. <laughs> okay. Uh, what do you <laughs> say? Together, Paul. Let's get You're here with your board member. Like, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's concise. Uh, what do you say in your inside voice that you don't say aloud? In my inside voice. Inside what, what voice in your head. Like, what do oh. you say in your head that you don't say out loud? Uh Man, get me um, out of this interview. T- Why did I say <laughs> yes? Karen's amazing. You know, she's the uh, yeah. uh, board member ever. I never tell her that. So now's now's the moment. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. No, I think um, I, I try meeting. to like. You're yeah. thinking stuff. You're not saying it out loud. What is it? Oh. That's the joy of being the CEO. You can just say whatever you want, whenever you want. Like I just interrupt as soon as I have a have a thought. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Like uh, largely, you, you know, I, I try to make sure that, you know, if I've got any like real concerns, I, uh, I voice them immediately. That's actually one of the most important things, I think, for a distributed company. Otherwise, like there's, you know, there's already lag. You've got to cut it down. So, Paul, where did you grow up? And what parts of that growing up helped you know you could start a company or made you believe you could start a company? Yeah, I grew up in New Zealand. Um, I moved around a lot within New Zealand and for a brief and three years, I lived in Thailand actually as a young kid, but then spent most of my uh, childhood growing up. Um, in the South Island of New Zealand. Um, I went to a boarding school because I lived on a farm. 
And um, I think the thing about growing a comp, uh, like building a company, my dad is an entrepreneur uh, who funnily enough works in, in Superbase now, but um, it, it didn't actually feel that odd. In fact, it feel, felt more strange uh, working at one point I worked in Accenture and I really did not enjoy it. So um, I think I've always been more drawn to doing, you know, startups. And what, when did your passion for building start? What was the first thing uh, you built that was meaningful and how did you transition into software? Yeah. So I started doing websites for people, but then actually I got this weird job. So I was like, there's a um, pork processing company in New Zealand. Uh, once again, it's very Tiwi. It's an agricultural yeah, yeah, company. We can talk. But um, they they have these abattoirs, which I would have to go into, and then I would literally put in these what? like... What is that? Sorry for an, like... An abattoir is like where they... <laughs> How do I say it? But... I don't know what that is. Oh, you don't know? Okay, it's like where they um like it's a slaughterhouse oh, you know hence, where they I'm like i'm a vegetarian uh, this is perfect yeah okay <laughs> yeah. so it's a very it's a very strange job but because new zealand is like all farm land basically everything um i had to go into these well i didn't have to but this was the job i went into these um abattoirs and i would install and program these like scales and these touch screens and then i'd build this like automated system where um you know i'd be automating these kind of uh, like abattoir lines and um i just went through the entire business actually and started building software around the processes and it was everything from hardware to databases to to the software and interfaces um yeah i got to do it all because i was the only programmer and were you teaching yourself how to build all of these, like all about the databases and um, assembling code and all that? Yeah, that was all self-taught. And funnily enough, the first uh, the first thing that I used was this one called Cold Fusion. You wouldn't really use it anymore as a Adobe Adobe software. Yeah, uh, and it was quite honestly, it was very cool because it allowed you to do real-time systems, which funnily enough is what we build now. It's one of the key features of. Superbases that you can listen to your database in real time. And so it's kind of gone full circle in that that's how I started my career, building these like real time database uh, systems for farmers. Now I build them for developers. And there's this really funny usage pattern. So what farmers would do is they would send their, their pigs. This was a, a, a pig abattoir. They would send them to this, um, this processing plant once a month. And then um, they would just log into this website uh, for one day, watch as their sort of uh, pigs like went across the line, and then uh, and then they wouldn't log in for another one month. So it's completely over-engineered. They don't even need it in real time for this one one hour of uh, of of usage. But it was very good for my my learning. It's, it's, it's like almost like you were meant to build this company and like everything in your life like led you back to building it. But that's beautiful. But Funny who would enough, have known I, a pig farm? Who would have known? Yeah, from, from a farm to a, to a startup. Uh, funnily enough, after that, you know, because I was using databases a lot, I was thinking, oh, you know, the way that we're building with databases isn't very effective. Um, and so I kind of pitched 
I didn't know this concept of startups. They don't really exist in New Zealand. So um, I found this millionaire um, and I kind of sent him an email and pitched him this idea of like an interface on top of a database that would make it very easy to build. And he outright rejected me. But of course, that's once again, like that was 15 years ago. And here I am today, essentially building the same thing. That's amazing. Like, and I think being starting anything, you have to get used to a lot of rejection, uh, a lot of things that you care about that nobody else cares about. A lot of, um, we were joking with uh, Chris Van Pelt that when you're talking to people, you actually just see the top of their heads because they're still typing. You know, it's one of those things where you never get to, it's hard to get feedback from folks. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that you and I have talked about is this idea of, are you in a tunnel or a cave? So when things are tough, it's sometimes hard to know if it's a tunnel or a cave where a tunnel is temporary and a cave is you've hit a dead end and you should uh, maybe rethink about this. Like, how do you think about tunnel and caves when you're building and you're building a company and any advice for folks? Hmm. Well, first of all, you should probably all, always assume you're in a ton, uh, in a cave. Um, you, you know, always be skeptical about what you're building. Uh, we've got actually one of our core um, like onboarding traits and what we try to hire for is intellectual honesty. Uh, and largely it surfaces itself a lot in distributed companies because you're alone um, programming. You can get really stuck in your idea and a week goes by and you've got this sunk cost fallacy, right? So you just keep doing it. So we, on in the onboarding call, we tell engineers that, you know, intellectual honesty is super important for, for mitigating this. And then a lot of the processes that we do are um, designed to mitigate it. So we do RFCs in our company, re- requests for comments. And a lot of what, um, that process is geared up to do is first of all, ask what the problem is. And then it asks them to come up with not just a solution, but multiple solutions to the problem. And it largely stemmed from this idea that um, Charlie Munger has this concept where uh, he's got a very good quote. I don't know exactly, but he says like the mind is like, um, you know, a human egg. As soon as it's like got an idea, it's like, uh, it's like impregnated with this idea and you cannot let it go. And what you want to do is understand that that's going to happen and that you need to design ways that you can actually release this idea. So uh, coming up with at least three ways to solve a problem is a very good good start. Uh, If you just come up with one, you'll truly believe that it is the only way. It's interesting to me in everything that you talk about. You're very thoughtful in how you build a company and like, are you structured? You have processes for everything. How do you hire people that will also like do this when you're not in the room? Like what characteristics are you looking for? And then how do you in- indoctrinate is the wrong word. Teach them, inculcate your culture in them. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if you can, we do say that um, Superbase is uh, process driven once again in the onboarding call and we call it out as an onboarding trait and we tell people that you know this is one of the traits that we look for and what we want you to embody i think a lot of it just comes down to um you, you know what the say founders are doing a lot um we're writing down processes and principles 
and we're saying it very often. The number of times, and actually, funnily enough, it goes back to your point, Karen, like on a tunnel, on a cave, we've got this concept of Kaizen, which means like very incremental changes comes from the Toyota production system. We've got a, a Slack channel just on Kaizen where anyone can suggest a change, not just on the product, but across the whole business. And we talk about Kaizen when we're doing shipping. It's just, you know, one of the most frequent words that's said. And, you know, if you do these things often enough, everyone will, uh, of course, adapt. So I think it comes from the early DNA um, spreads out and then you've got the um, the core members of the team kind of really uh, soak that into their own DNA and then they take it into um, the rest of the org. One thing that you and Lavanya have in common is you spend a lot of time outside the United States. Neither one of you are from the U.S. Was that true, Lavanya? Where were you born? India. Okay, so neither one of you are we're, from the we're U.S. We're in India? Uh, near Delhi, uh, an hour yeah. out. And so much of Silicon Valley thought is that the world is around Silicon Valley. And do you feel that being from outside the U.S. is a feature or a bug for both of you? And, and you both spend a lot of time outside the U.S. Not only are you from outside the U.S., you, you spend time outside the U.S. So how do, you, how do you think about that? A lot of times people in Silicon Valley are like, that's a bug. I was like, is that a, is that a feature or a bug? Paul. You can start, Lavanya. I'm very Rich. interested in what your answer to this is. Uh, so it's interesting because um, I started coding when I was 10, so my mental model of the world was like Silicon Valley software. Like, you know, that was the thing. Um, and then I moved to the US when I was 15. And like, I was there for 15 years. And that's the only mental model that I knew. Most of my friends were programmers. So it was like non-diverse at all. And then during the pandemic, I moved um, to... India for a little bit and then Europe and like it was interesting because like when you're in the US you think that's the only country that exists that's the best country this is how we do things and like you know and even within the US it's like Silicon Valley this is how we do things you know but then suddenly I was like in London and like I was looking at like how they're innovating like the stuff that they're doing with in the financial industry is so much more advanced than the US and suddenly you're like wait that is not my way is not the only way you know so I think I started picking up different mental models from different places that I lived in. And now I don't just have one mental model. Um, one, I know my mental model is not the only one, so I should be adaptive, which didn't even occur to me. And second, like I have all these different options for mental models, which I think has made me a better thinker. And also, I feel like it has made my life richer personally, because like, um, like I would go to all of these like different places in Paris and like, London, which I wouldn't have done, like I was just in like my own little apartment throwing like techie parties, you know, so. Very cool. Paul. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. So if I wasn't running a tech company, um, specifically my type of tech company, which is the um, like developer tooling, then I think it couldn't have been as successful as it is without a... Um, the period of COVID and B, um, uh, it has to be um, dev tools. Um, so uh, I think like if there was anything else, uh, like for example, if I was starting an AI specific company um, now, it would have to be in Silicon Valley. That's just re really one of the most important things. For now, I think like the we've got enough um, traction that outside of um, 
outside of the US and looking in, we, uh, for example, when I visit um, the US, we already have a lot of customers in Silicon Valley and strategically I can go in. So a really good example was there was the AI engineer conference the other day. We came in, I met a lot of our partners, um, you know, the uh, folks from Langchang and Llama Index and um, Swix from who was organizing it. And this is very effective use of my time. But actually I parked up at Swix's, um, his house for a couple of weeks and it was super exciting um, because I'm going every night to a, another AI conference and a meetup. And one night I went to three different meetups and I looked back on the things that were most effective. And it was really the AI engineer conference that one summit was extremely effective. And then the, the hackathons, you know, had diminishing returns. So I think it's a bit of a feature for our current stage of the business that we're extremely um, uh, focused. We don't have to be too distracted. And then we can go in very strategically when it's, when it's important. Can you both give me a prediction for what's going to happen in your industry in three years? Everything's worked. And I know, Levania, I'm putting you on the spot. And Paul, I'm putting you on the spot. So think about in the world of databases or vector databases or however. And Levania, when you think about everything that's being built in AI, three-year prediction with it, everything going well. What I'm the most excited about is the new kinds of companies that are going to emerge because of what these multi-model multimodal models make uh, possible. So for example, everything is going to have a natural interface. So you can like literally just say, hey, I want to build a new home in my house. Um, here, are, show me some ideas. These are the ones I like. Now make it happen, right? So if that's the problem statement, like it can, will it be Pinterest who builds that or like a home renovation company who builds that or like, like you know, whoever, like Costco or like whoever sells like the materials or maybe it's a whole different type of company who just comes and owns that whole journey. So I'm like really excited when like how customer, how people are asking for what they want becomes different and like the nature of the ask becomes so expensive. What are the kind of companies that come up to serve that? Nice. From our side? Yeah, I think um, specifically on the AI ML type um, uh, future, then the thing that if you are willing to bet that is going to continue, then you can almost guarantee that everything needs to be turned into an embedding. Um, whether it's a photo, a video, um, some text, um, it needs to exist both in its raw content and as an embedding of some sort. And this is a huge, huge amount of data that then needs to be converted. So I think like I think about things from a database point of view, um, if you, you want it to be useful in real time, um, you need it to be accessible to an operational database, say like um, like uh, Postgres, and you also need it to be extremely um, like large in terms of file storage. So I, I think what we'll see is that there'll be um, a lot of the operational databases will start thinking more about how they can store huge amounts of data, either by sharding, uh, uh, partitioning, storing it in S3. And um, that's kind of the future where we're also driving towards. So um, it's pretty exciting. I think over the next three years, there'll be this um, uh, spill out effects of this um, move whereby 
big data, um, not just um, embeddings, but anything to do with an, uh, analytical data, OLAP use cases will start being baked into more OLTP use cases as well. For example, for every, I love the idea, like everything is going to be stored in embeddings and like, how do mm -hmm. we come up with ways like that would be so cool. <laughs> no, I just, I, I don't know if it's extremely irrelevant to this audience, but as well, like we, maybe it is. So, so I might as well say it, you know, a lot of, um, watch say Apple are bringing out or, um, even, you know, uh, Facebook, I think they just recently brought out some, some cameras and a lot of that, like if you want to then start pushing into these sort of use cases, then not only is everything going to be turned into an embedding, but a lot of the real world, the spatial, um, uh, everything spatial is also going to have to be stored. Objects where they live in physical space. Um, so this is a super interesting paradigm as well. One that um, that um, I, I think is an important future. I don't know how far away it is, but there's this convergence between raw data, spatial data, and embeddings that I think is going to produce a lot of like really, really interesting businesses. I do think a lot of the AR work, a lot of the AR work that uh, Apple and, and Meta are doing are going to help map a lot of this. And then it'll be interesting to see what the side effect is on that, like what that means to how we can tag and understand spatial information in a way that we can't today. And then a fun fact, Paul is on his phone. So this is all through the camera on his new iPhone, just to show how advanced oh, wow. these are, because I think it's really great quality. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And so, it's his thanks new for phone, the shout out. people. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I, got no, my, you've got... I got the, I actually was talking to a streamer the other day at um, the YC meetup. And I asked him, oh, you know, what, what um, camera do I need to buy if I want to get into streaming? And he said, oh, actually, if you're not a professional, you should buy an iPhone 15 Pro. Um, that's actually you know, probably the best that you can do. So that's, that's what I thought. Paul, thank you so much for coming and spending the time with us, for uh, sharing about how you think about building a company. And I'm really excited for the future and, and of what's going to be possible. And thank you so much. Thank you Thank both you, for Paul. having me. Thank you for listening to that episode of Creating Descent. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to subscribe to us and we'll see you in the next episode.